Hello and welcome to another episode of Below the Fold. This week we've got Michael Certuti, CEO and founder of Strala. Thanks for coming on, man. You're welcome. Good to be here. Cool. So this episode, it, we're going to be focusing on marketing automation or uh, attribution modeling. Uh, is there anything else specifically in that field that you think we should touch on? Yeah. So it's going to be you know holistic marketing measurement and you know what are the best ways to accomplish this whether it's media mix modeling marketing mix modeling or incremental where should i invest my next dollar across content different channels cool sounds great let's get started okay michael uh, for the first few minutes, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce your company, what you guys do. Uh, we'll probably interject with some some little questions here and there to clarify in, anything, but great. Uh, go ahead and take it away. Yeah, so Michael Chertuti, we started Strala almost two years ago, and uh, Strala is a is a business, and it's solving a problem that I have lived as a marketer. So I've been in marketing for almost uh, eighteen years. Uh, ever since I graduated from college uh, and what I found early on in my career as a digital marketer, I started at Ancestry.com, then I went to Omniture and Adobe, is that most marketers have problems measuring their performance across their different channels, across their marketing campaigns, across digital, across traditional, across different events. And so after years of attempting to solve this problem with bailing wire and duct tape, we decided to uh, leave and to definitively solve a lot of these challenges that we saw. And we, we saw a unique opportunity and a unique way to actually solve all these problems very differently from the way most companies do that. And so uh, we focus in on uh, marketing analytics and uh, more than just attribution models. You know, you see a lot of marketers trying to solve and trying to measure their performance using attribution. And we think attribution is part of the story, but there are also a lot of the uh, additional components of the story where it helps them think more broadly about marketing measurement. Most marketers you know, tend to measure their individual silos, like if you're a search marketer or display media buyer or a social marketer, or even conversion rate optimization on your website, it's all very isolated. So what we do is we help companies take a very holistic approach to their marketing measurement so they know where to invest that incremental next dollar. Cool. Hmm. So, so real quick, sorry, I, and, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here. Please. You had mentioned a, a, a little earlier that you were solving for a problem that had existed during your whole career, and that's why you left and started Strala. Right. Uh, in your experience, which is vast, can you pull out one or two examples yeah. where you were like, ah, I wish I could track better or I wish there was technology that did this or, 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 or kind of examples that led you to finally leaving and starting Strala. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, you know, if you, if you think about the adage that was started or attributed to John Wanamaker who started Unilever, I know 50% of my marketing or my advertising is working. I just don't know what 50% is actually working. Mm -hmm. You know, this has been a challenge for a long time. I think marketing as a discipline has really been around since, you know, the late 1800s, 1890. 1890s, they had A-B testing in print pieces, even back in the 1890s in magazine tests. Hmm. And so we think that digital marketing is really the, the forefront of A-B testing and being able to isolate things. It actually started a long time ago. Yeah. And so if you think about marketing and its evolution over the last 
you know, 20, 30 years, you know, you have Madison Avenue agencies driving brand advertising. And what we saw is a lot of math came into the equation with media mix modeling, marketing mix modeling. It's also known as top down. And so they're trying to measure the effectiveness of their different, you know, marketing channels across TV and radio. And they're applying correlative models to understand unit sales and fluctuations and changes. So fast forward to, you know, the early 2000s when digital marketing really is starting to take off mm -hmm. because the internet, you know, five, six years before that became something very uh, important for us. And it all started back with cookies back in the day, you know, and cookies yeah. are almost a yeah. you know, 20 plus year old technology. So as I was thinking about this in my first uh, position as a digital marketer back at Ancestry.com, um, what I found was we were trying to track the effectiveness of our marketing campaigns. This is back when Ancestry was a little small business. You know, people were starting to hear about it. We were the seventh largest advertiser. I was responsible for a lot of the digital media budget back in 2002 through, through 2005. And the challenge that I had was trying to take uh, data from all of the ad networks back in the day for display advertising and then try to associate that to conversions, you know, within our system on the back end. Mm -hmm. And the way I would marry these two things together was what we called source IDs or campaign IDs. I think every digital marketer on the planet uses some notion of a campaign ID or source ID or UTM parameters. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And so what happened was, you know, I would take all of my advertising data out of our ad server across, you know, thousands of placements, spending, you know, millions of dollars trying to associate it to that conversion. And what I found was that uh, I was doing this for my display advertising channel. Our search marketing team was doing it for, you know, Google and Yahoo and Bing. We had our email team that was doing it in isolation. And then we had uh, our website team doing this. And what happened was one day after we were really growing the business and we were all reporting our, our metrics to the business intelligence team and the finance team, they said, you know, if we add up all of your ROI across all of your different channels, this business should be a lot bigger than it really is. And so either the business and the fundamentals are wrong or you all are wrong in your double counting and triple counting, quadruple counting. And we all looked at each other and we thought, I think we've got a big problem here. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so that's, that was the beginning or the genesis of me thinking about, you know, measurement and attribution and doing this in siloed channels and data. And, you know, fast forward, you know, almost 18 years and here we are, and we're still not in a much better place. We all tend to measure this um, in our isolated channels. You start to see, you know, attribution vendors popping up to help companies understand what's the, uh, which channels are really driving the better performance. And they're still fraught with lots of problems because you've got this, you know, you've got a data issue. Yeah. And so as a result of that, we said, okay, we can solve the data issue, but we can also solve the models issue. So that's, you know, that instance back from, you know, 2003, 2004 really got me thinking about the problem. And it's been something that's plagued marketers, I think for the last, you know, almost 20 years. Totally. So from like, I'm thinking through a sale, um, as I'm thinking how, how you guys sell your stuff, right? Mm -hmm. How do you identify which companies are the ones that have these problems? Yeah. Are they coming to you? I mean, you've been around two years. Yep. Uh, I think in Utah, 
Strala has a has a reputation because you guys are at, at the local events and stuff sure. like that. But outside of Utah, I don't know what your footprint is. And I'm wondering, how do you identify or get in the door with people? Because I imagine most companies have the problem that you're talking about. Yeah. But in most cases, I don't know this. Yeah. But in, in a lot of cases, at the very least, I imagine they just don't know that they have this problem. So you're having to identify you have a problem and here's how to fix it or what the result will be. Yeah, it's a great question. So when we go in and we have our conversation with the organization, we tend to focus on medium sized to large enterprise businesses. So we're really going after the Fortune 1000. We're going after companies that are over, uh, you know, on the smaller side, maybe $100 million in sales as well. So there are quite a few accounts that size. But every single time we talk with a company and we say, here are the top five problems that we see with most uh, marketing organizations and the pain points that they're dealing with, always without exception, measurement is within the top three. And so, you know, typically the CMO is very aware of this. The head of digital is very aware of this. The individual marketers are aware of this. And to some degree or another, they think they've got a level of understanding, but not a level of a solution to address it. So, you know, our footprint outside of Utah, you know, we, you know, we go after these big accounts. We do, it's an enterprise sales process. So we go to events, you know, we go to the chief MarTech conferences in the West Coast and the East Coast. We go to the marketing analytics and data science conferences. And, uh, and so that's how we engage with customers. But they typically say, yes, we understand this is a big problem. We ask them, how are you solving this problem? And they typically say, uh, we don't have a good answer. We, you know, we, 72% of marketers are using a last touch or a last click model still, which in the last 20 years, it's shrunk from 95% down to, you know, 72%, which is still really high. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all the touch points on average, you'll see about 13 different touch point interactions prior to a conversion event. And we're still as an industry only giving credit to that last touch point and creating an index by which we place our investment. So they know it's a problem, but even more problematic than that is the data. And we ask marketers, we say, so what's wrong with the data? And we say, well, we've got inconsistent tracking. We've got silo data across multiple channels. We are bringing it together and we're co-locating the data. And then we're trying to um, extract insights out of co-located data and trying to unify it. And they say, it's still not working. It's still a big problem. So everybody recognizes that this is a big problem in terms of measurement. So we see that often. Interesting. So we're actually getting into uh, like best practices here, right? Where yeah. you're talking, most people are doing last touch attribution modeling. In in your opinion, what should people be doing? I mean, yeah. there there are a plethora of different models. Yeah. And I imagine they that there are different ones that are 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 useful in different situations right. or different industries or different companies. Yep. Do you have like a, a a set of rules where where you can come into a company and be like? here's the attribution model you should be using. Sure. And does, does Strala provide uh, a solution for all of them? Yeah, great question. So there's a, there's a great quote attributed to statistician George Box. And he said, all models are wrong, some are useful. And so we believe that. You know, there's no silver uh, bullet, if you will, for any given situation. But some models are more useful than others. And I can tell you with 13 average touch points preceding a conversion event across the industry, whether you're a B2C or a B2B marketer, uh, I can tell you that last touch and last click digitally is probably not the most sophisticated nor most accurate model. So what we'd look at is 
you know, there's a combination of heuristic models that are rules-based models or human-driven models, and then there's a combination of good, sophisticated, mathematically or machine-driven models that are very useful also. And so we're always a proponent and an advocate. If you're looking at attribution models, we're a proponent of looking at something like a time decay model, where it's gonna give a credit to all of the model or all of the touch points preceding a conversion, and it might give more credit um, more to a more the more recent conversions or a linear distributed model so or, is that is that based on weight like it you, is you, so so you you mentioned time decay which typically uh, fr from what i was looking at you use when your uh consideration time is is a lot longer right so you're giving credit to the channels or the sources that are pushing that lead on to the next kind of phase phase in the funnel or yeah, whatever yeah that's right so uh so time decay is, uh, so that's my understanding. Is that yeah. time decay is a good one. Okay. Um, when you look at uh, time decay, position weighted, some of these others, the important ones we think are when you're looking at distributing credit in some way across all touch points, the more accurate and more sophisticated ones, however, are those that are more of those algorithmic or mathematically or machine driven models. And what's taking place is, is if you think about conversion digitally, the average conversion rate is less than 3% across you know, most consumers yeah. and B2B websites. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're saying, we're gonna heavily weight the models that are actually driving to conversion, but what about the 97, 97% of those journeys that aren't leading to a conversion event? So what about taking those into consideration? So Importantly, the more machine-based models are going to take into consideration those journeys as well as those uh, journeys that are leading to conversion. I was just speaking with a, a very prominent uh, individual today at Google, and um, I was asking their opinion on some of these different models, and he was asking uh, my opinion. And you know, I didn't know you were tight with Sergey. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. I, I wish, Sergey. Yeah. <laughs> Avinash Kashik, yes. I love Avinash. Sergey, I don't know. So, anyway, yeah. um, great, great team over there. So, getting his opinion on this, and, you know, I was asking this individual, and he said, you know, think about all of the touch points that don't lead to a conversion event. So, that's when you can really leverage what we are calling incremental or incrementally predictive models that are helping marketers not just understand, you know, attribution, which is akin to driving down the interstate and you're looking in the rearview mirror and you're saying, okay, what happened really is where attribution's at. But when you're able to do some holdout tests and you're able to remove artificially some of the touch points and you're able to say, if I were to invest my next incremental dollar, where should I invest it? That's where the predictive models are much more powerful and they're not always attuned to what we would traditionally call attribution models. So they're more predictive models, but they all are contemplating all of those standardized data touch points. And that's where we feel like we've got a unique perspective on that. Hmm. Uh, so there are algorithms that go into this. Yes. So when we talk about first touch or last touch, you yeah. meant you use the word linear, which yeah. very linear not very many algorithms are needed in order to determine right. the last touch. Yeah. What are, what are uh, and, and there's a list of different algorithms that can go into them. it. Yeah. How, how is that, how do you determine which one to use and where? Yeah. And, and, and for, for people listening, and I'm, I'm not a smart guy, so I have this written down, uh, but there's, there's predictive machine learning yep. involved, yep. but the algorithms could be 
uh, I'm going to act like I know what these are. <laughs> Go uh, for it. Gradient boosting machines, mm -hmm. FTRL, yep. neutral networks, game theory, yep. uh, logistic regression. Right. I, I mean, how that seems really, that's like rocket science. Yeah. How much of that is like, do you have people at Strala who are like, I'm the gradient boosting guy, you know, we actually do. Yeah. So, um, the way we think about the models are the models in the science and the math has been around for a long time. Um, what hasn't been around for a long time is, is good, clean, consistent data. So when we think about those different models, you know, you can talk about a Bayesian model that's been around for a long time, mm -hmm. you know, you know, three or four decades, you could talk about a, a neural network, uh, model or a, you know, a game theory model, like a, like a Markov chain. And basically we're using and deploying those models to get more into that predictive space. So if I had more dollars to invest or I, or I were to redeploy my dollars, should I be using those models because it's going to help me be more predictive looking in the, in the uh, windshield driving down the interstate versus drive, you know, driving, looking in the rearview mirror. So those models are very useful yeah. for thinking about being predictive about where to invest my next incremental dollar. Absolutely. And, and how are the, how are these built into the software itself? Yeah. Great question. So the most important, so there's really two challenges when it comes to measurement. Uh, and I'll talk at a high level and then I'll dive in just a little bit into the weeds. Okay. So there are two to three key ingredients in measurement from a marketing perspective. And I say two to three because it really depends on the type of measurement that you're trying to conduct. If you're trying to do you know, typical attribution, you need all three ingredients. If you're doing media mix or marketing mix modeling, you only need two of the ingredients. The ingredients are the individual that you're trying to connect the touch points and the conversion points to, whether they're known or anonymous. The second ingredient is the touch points. You know, all those interactions where they may have gone across, you know, digital touch points such as display, email, your website, your app. And then the last ingredient, the third, is that conversion event or the subsequent conversion events. If you're a B2B marketer, it might be an inquiry, and then it goes to a MQL, SQL, SAL, and a closed one deal. And so those are the three ingredients. It's again, it's who did what across the touch points and when, and that leading to that third ingredient of the conversion. If you're doing attribution or some of these more sophisticated uh, models trying to tie it to an individual, um, you need all three ingredients. If you're going to be doing media mix or marketing mix modeling, or even some of these uh, neural network models, you don't necessarily need the who connected to them. All you need is all of the battery of touch points, the level of investment in those touch points across print and digital and TV, and then you're connecting it to unit and incremental sales. And so that's really crucial when we're trying to understand how to connect the dots because if we think about the future and there's a lot of, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, fear. There's a lot of misinformation out there about, you know, what's going to happen if cookies go away, what's going to mm -hmm. happen into this world where we can't connect it to a user profile. Well, I would say that's not a terrible thing because a lot of these neural network models and machine learning models, it's going to, it's going to evaluate all of those touch points. It's going to look for patterns and then it's going to say, okay, what led to conversion events? So we actually are very optimistic in a world where, those things may go away. We, we personally don't believe that those things are going away. What's really going to go away is third party, uh, IDs and tracking. It doesn't really affect, you know, most organizations, digital tracking and things like that, because first party data is really where a lot of this is centered anyway. And even if that did go away, 
you know, we've got the right touch points as marketing organizations these days. And if we apply the right math, we're in good shape. This is super interesting. Yeah. Like, I hope people are listening and I mean, I'm a marketer. So, I mean, this is like, as I'm, as I'm, so I work at Vivint Smart Home and I'm thinking, man, our, our attribution is a mess. Uh, and, <laughs> it, it is and, typically. It, yeah, yeah. With most companies. Yeah, I imagine that's true. But uh, um, no, as I'm listening, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, there's so much more than what we're doing. Uh, so interesting. Thank you, Brandon. What were you saying? Oh, well, I was just going to say, so up until week, up until last Friday, I was the director of marketing at Dev Mountain. I'm not sure oh, if yeah, you've sure. heard of them. Um, but the customer journey is super long because we're taking people who often are at, you know, dead end jobs yep. or, you know, a rough time in life, whatever. And they're, they're looking to, to switch over to this awesome career developer. And then they've got to have 12 grand to do it, which yep. you're not going to just make that on a whim. So mapping out or, or tracking the customer journey was huge for us. But the problem was we have a custom built website, you know, which has Google analytics attached to it. Then our sales, so to speak, were happening in Salesforce. Yep. And then we have another email uh, platform called ConvertKit, which many people haven't heard of. You could think of MailChimp or something like that. Like just a lot of different pieces. And then we were using Clipfolio, which is kind of like a grow.com competitor type thing to try to piece the data together. Right. But we still miss out on that like, A, we're last click attribution. So Google search is getting all the credit. So SEO, of course, is like, yeah, we're killing it. When really, (laughs) I think people have already done their research for nine months. And then they just typed in Dev Mountain and then, you know, converted. So was that really an SEO win type thing? But I imagine that's what's something that Strala connects. Um, And then, so now I'm at 97th floor, the director of marketing there, and they're building everything on HubSpot, including the website. So naturally you have... I mean, hypothetically, at least we're still, I'm, I'm still interested to see how well this actually happens, but supposedly everything will be tracked, right? From first click to the website to sale, we'll be able to see because everything's connected to the website. Is it similar to that, to what, cause most people aren't going to build their website on a platform like HubSpot, which right. has the CRM. It's, it's going to be a custom website, especially if it's enterprise and whatnot. Yep. Um, but is that essentially what it is, is where they're just placing the Strala code in their website, and then you're essentially just tagging every movement. And then the computer kind of calculates that in the background. That is great. And I love your story there because it is so uh, illustrative of the problem. Mm-hmm. You've got you know, your, your email marketing system. You've got your paid search. You've got your display. You've got your website. You might have an app. Mm-hmm. And you've got all this siloed data coming together. Yep. And the biggest challenge is this. Um, there are, so there are three real challenges associated with measurement when it comes down to it. Um, number one is there's a data problem and number two, then there's a models problem. Which model Mm -hmm. do I use? Yeah. And you, you create, you created the picture perfectly for the data problem. And here's the foundation of the data problem. There are two big components here. One is because we're getting this data from different siloed sources, whether it is uh, paid search or display or video or my paid social or my earned social mm-hmm. or my website or my email or the other 10 channels that I could be using, all of these different silos and data sets have their own data schemas with their own tracking IDs mm-hmm. and they've got pixels on your website to track conversion. And so the problem is inconsistent tracking And so if you were to able to solve this problem by harmonizing and pre-standardizing all of the tracking 
before the data actually gets created, mm-hmm. then you have data that acts and moves like the same data set. So everybody's familiar if you're a digital marketer with UTM codes and UTM tracking. That's been around for almost 20 years. The problem is, is that we're using UTM tracking and we're using spreadsheets to try and manage our URLs and our UTM parameters. And some people yeah. have gotten a little bit more sophisticated and they've built a homegrown system. The problem though is, is that we're not consistent in using our UTM tracking or our source IDs on every single interaction. Yeah. And so if and you if, were, if you miss it, then the data just gets messed up. It gets messed up and you've got a spreadsheet and we've worked with accounts and they've got a team in France and they're responsible for sending out the UTM tracking spreadsheets to the teams. And sometimes they use it and sometimes they don't. And they're only tracking five parameters. Mm-hmm. They're tracking source, medium, keyword. It was built for Urchin, Google Analytics back in the day. <laughs> you know, UTM stands for Urchin Tracking Module is where it comes from mm-hmm. that Google bought. I actually spoke with uh, Wesley Chan, the founder of Google Analytics a few weeks ago, brilliant guy. And I asked him about this and he said, yeah, we, we tried to solve some of this, but we didn't get to the full thing. And when they built Google Analytics from, an, from a measurement perspective, and so you've got this data problem. So if you can pre-standardize all that data with an enterprise grade approach to standardized tracking that integrates in to all of these siloed systems, that's step number one. So you solve the tracking problem and you actually solve a whole lot of other problems as well. The second piece of that is making sure that it's tied appropriately to all of your conversion points, whether that's your CRM system that mm-hmm. you talked about, it could be salesforce.com, it could be your e-commerce engine, it could be your point of sale, it could be a call system. And so, so long as you're able to capture and consistently tie together all of those touch points with an enterprise version of tracking, you know, that's, that was the thesis that we started Strala on. And then you're able to collect all those touch points. Here's another problem that most companies don't recognize. If you're using HubSpot or, or a Marketo or something else, you're actually not capturing all those anonymous touch points. So let's say someone comes to your, let's say that they see a display banner or they come to an event and then they come to, you know, then they come to your website, you remarket to them with a display banner and it prompts them to search. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those systems won't capture all of those anonymous touch points prior to a lead conversion or a lead submission. They're missing all of those. So not only are you, if you've standardized the the touch points, so you say, oh, this is search, this is display, this is for promotion A, this is promotion B, you're missing out on a lot of those touch points. And then that's what you need. You need a complete set of unified touch points in sequence and then you apply the math to it. So it's a data problem and a model problem. So that's, mm. what, that's what marketers need to solve these days. So yes, we have JavaScript on, that we put on a first party basis on our, on our client's website. It captures all of those predefined, pre-standardized touch points. You, know, you go well beyond just the five UTM parameters. We have companies that are tracking 20, 25, 30 different parameters. They don't wanna just know what source or medium, they wanna know, which content pieces specifically, was it the webinar or the guide, or was it promotion 30% off or promotion 20% off, mm-hmm. or was it you know messaging A versus messaging B, or content created for persona X or persona Y, or journey stage content A you know, of awareness versus cons- uh, journey stage consideration yep. versus loyalty. So there's so many more things that we could be standardizing our content on to measure beyond channel and beyond publisher that really gives us those granular insights. And then when you apply the math to it, 
it's super powerful in terms of what you're able to optimize and redeploy your dollars to. So Brandon, when you, when you kind of introduced Dev Mountain's problem, uh, were offline conversions a thing too, which, so uh, the reason I'm asking is because I'm wondering if the same principles apply, mm -hmm. right? They do. They should. You have, you have your digital touch points yep. and, and if you're an e-commerce site, it's almost all done online. That's right. But in circumstances, in certain circumstances, like a Vivint, right? Yep. All of our conversions happen offline. That's right. All we want is a phone call yep. or a form and the form turns into a phone call anyway. Right. So it's just a phone call. You're saying the same principles apply where you Identical. have, you have your Invoca or your five, nine or your whatever. That's right. And you just need to be able to plug those touch points in and capture those. That's exactly right. So every single touch point, wherever possible, where you have an interaction with a prospective or an existing customer, you should, you should have an ability to measure that touch point and have the associated classifications and metadata associated to that ID, if you will the five or the 20, you know, that we were just talking about source, medium term content promotion, et cetera. And then the important thing is whether it's a digital conversion, like an e-commerce or a non-digital conversion, like a, let's call it a sell through dev mountain mm -hmm. that, you know, that person who's had that career who wants to change their life and go to a code school and get a new career and they sign up, you need to be able to tie all those touch points back to that person. And so that is exactly the case. So what we, what we recommend is that you have to integrate with those conversion systems endpoints records. So the CRM system, if it's salesforce.com, the endpoint system, if it's your e-commerce site, if it's your point of sale, using the loyalty, loyalty ID to try and understand those conversion points if you're a grocery chain. So absolutely, those same principles apply. It's all the touch points leading up to those conversion events and the dollars associated with that value. That's interesting. We, I think this is typically called just multi-touch attribution, but really it sounds like every touch attribution, it right? Is, it's not just being selective. Yes. That's a great point. It's every touch attribution. And most people think about attribution only in the vein of which channel or medium or source or publisher. We say, look at not just the attribution or the incremental next dollar predictively, for those, but also what content is driving that? What promotions are driving? Has anybody talked about content attribution or content predictive modeling? You don't hear a lot about that. Content we know as digital marketers is king, Yeah. but no one's playing any credit to it. So we actually don't even think of ourselves as a MTA vendor or multi-touch vendor. We've talked with the Forrester researchers of the world and they said, hey, if we were you guys, we wouldn't even get mired down in that space because <laughs> everybody thinks it only as channel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, you you you've mentioned this idea of concept ad, or excuse me, content attribution. Right. When when you're talking to clients or prospective clients or whatever, does the blog come up as like a tool that they have at their disposal? That that because I imagine the blog, which I it, it, I feel like I'm applying my current experience mm -hmm. to a, the general audience, which may not be the case, but I feel like we're constantly having to prove the worth of the blog yeah and because we're like a modified last touch the right. blog doesn't re really even come into it it's not even considered so, right so i'm wondering in your experience how important is the blog and tracking how how often people are touching the blog before they even consider your critical, product critical critical so most companies are not putting ids or tracking on their blog and and they're not even considering it and so when you think about social posts on you know, Facebook or Instagram or your Twitter posts that are organic or owned, you know, every single one of those posts should be ID'd 
and it should be contemplated as your as part of your measurement model and your framework for all those touch points. So it's critical. We see uh, there are three things that are very upper underrepresented in terms of measurement. Number one, it's all of the owned channels. So such as your email list, mm -hmm. your blog posts, your podcasts that you might have, super upper underrepresented. Another thing that we see is um, search tends to get overrepresented, but if you think about the business overall, you know Google and Facebook represent you know, in some cases, 50 plus percent of a brand's investment across YouTube, oh, yeah. across Display Network, mm -hmm. across, you know, AdWords, across Facebook advertising. We're well over 50%. Okay, so there you go. And so when you start to think about your paid advertising, while search may be getting more credit than it deserves, overall, we're probably not giving enough credit to all of the paid advertising we're doing in display or video. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, I can tell you from my own experience, having put in place these you know, more sophisticated models that when I was able to turn the lights on and see what we would have done, I would have reallocated from paid search more into display and video because that actually drives search. But from a content creation perspective, I would actually allocate a lot more investment into my organic content and content marketing efforts. Best practices guides, blogs, podcasts, webinars. If I'm a B2C company, you know, tell me about the story. Tell me about that, you know, tell me about the lifestyle and the brand. So I would invest a lot more in content that, that I'm doing because, you know, commoditized purchases where you're just price, price shopping, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's not interesting. But if you can really build a story around your brand and you can connect the content to those touch points and associate those to your models, that's crucial. That's where I see the, the future of marketing yeah. measurement going. So let's talk about halo effect. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. this is, I mean, you kind of touched on yep. that a little bit. Happy to. Uh, so the example you used that, that kind of triggered this was display drive search. Yeah. Right. But typically you can't track that. Right. right? So your display ad shows up uh, and, and let's just use Vivint as an example, a Vivint display ad shows up and then someone opens a new tab and Google's Vivint all of a sudden that is that anonymous touch point that you can't track because I'll put can't track in yeah. quotes because maybe you have a solution for this. Yep. Uh, where search would get the credit because right. even though display is the one who drove the search. Right. So that, that I feel like every time there's a question, anytime someone's just like huh, scratching their head, they're like, hmm, must be halo effect. And it's just like this cop out answer. Yeah. Because they don't know. They don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I know what I'm talking about when I say halo. Yeah. Yep. Uh, are there ways to track Halo? Is that something that you guys have spent time uh, trying to solve? I mean, I, there I feel are like there's ways. still mystery there. Absolutely, you know? there is a way to do this. Um, so two things. One is you can take your data from display or video. And so long as you're able to understand if there was an exposure and then someone came to your website as a result of that, even though it came through an intermediary, like an assist of search, yeah. you can still track that, obviously, because what you're doing is you're, you're taking data from a view-based approach, and you can pixel track those things, and you can place a, a cookie on the, on the machine or some kind of pixel, 
And then when they come to your website and, and convert, you can conversion track that view through if you yeah. will. But more importantly, you're able to, and this has been around for, I don't know, I, I did that 15 years ago where you can do view-based conversions with display. But what hasn't been possible was to say, oh, I got a view-based conversion, but I didn't know that also intercepting that was paid search, maybe some video, maybe they bounced around my blog. So now we're able to measure all of those touch points leading to that conversion event. Hmm. So we can see that. So that's number one way to do it. The other way to do that, that halo effect, some, sometimes in traditional media mix or marketing mix modeling, that's known as base momentum. And basically what base momentum tells you is what is the power of your brand coupled with the power of your advertising and your marketing and your media. So what you can see is if you were to shut off different channels in investment, you can start to see what's known as base momentum and there's a decay associated with that. So if you've ever seen a media mix or a marketing mix modeling report, you see this, you know, base momentum is always the largest component in the, you know, axis, you know, of the Y axis. And it's basically this big amount. And what it shows is if you were to shut off your channels, it slowly decays over years or months or quarters. Yeah. It shows the lift effect of your different marketing or advertising okay. channels. So those are the two ways to measure that halo or that base momentum. That's awesome. Uh, definitely going to take a note and, and go look into that stuff. Uh, I want to make sure that we have enough time for uh, some small business stuff. I know that you guys specifically aren't really targeting small business uh, unless they're making a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Right? But we do have advice for small businesses. Yeah. So, so that, that's, that's what we want to get into. I know Brandon, Brandon has a small business mind. He's started his own businesses. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's the one who's always thinking about the little guys and how they can, uh, apply the these people. principles. Uh, w w where should we start? I do have one slightly off topic question. So the first time I heard about Strala was at uh, DMC, I think you presented like at lunchtime or something like that. Oh, right. right. Yeah. Uh, so that was the first time I, I saw. And then I started, maybe I've, it's always been there, but I just started noticing the Strala logo on the building yep. in Lehigh. I'm not sure if that logo is new. If it's been there since before, that it's, conference made me be aware of it. It's newer. Okay. <laughs> yep. Newish. <laughs> uh, did you by chance, like, did you guys make any effort to try to track like, okay, I'm going to go speak at DMC. We want to see how successful this payoff was because you know we're handing out some swag items and whatnot was there any approach to that or is it just mainly kind of waiting for people to come in and say oh yeah i heard about you at at dmc because that's usually how event marketing kind of goes right. is they wait for the customer how did you hear about us oh i think i saw you guys at this event right the, uh, was there any extra efforts taken on yeah, your part it's a great question so one of the most important things as a you know having a, a concerted event marketing approach so we we spoke we ended up sponsoring the event so if you're, you are an event marketer, one of the most critical things that you can do, and you can do this if you're a small business as well, is you want to take that event, you want to put a touch point on it. If you're a salesforce.com user or a HubSpot user, you can upload a, an ID mm -hmm. associated to all of the people that visited you. So we had a lot of people give us their business cards. Mm -hmm. And so what we wanted to see was how many people ended up not just giving us, you know, their contact information, but how many of them ended up turning into an opportunity, a sale through a sales cycle. So what we're able to do is take a touch point ID from Strala, 
Uh, you can take a Touchpoint ID from your CRM system. You upload it into your CRM, associate it with all those contacts where you get their contact information, mm. and then you're able to count that as one of the touch points. Gotcha. And so then you're able to understand that. Now, um, with some of the smaller businesses, you're going to be relegated to more of those last click or last touch models sure. that are kind of out of the box with perhaps some of the tracking that exists with a HubSpot or something else. But even if, even as a small business, creating an index is important. Mm-hmm. You don't want to just be flying blind. So there actually is a purpose for a last touch, a first touch model, being able to compare the two sources and able to say what's working versus what's not. It's better than flying blind. So we're big proponents of event marketing um, and associating touch points to those. Yeah. And so that's, that's just an example of how you might go about doing that. So we did do that. And uh, Google Analytics, so, I mean, that's usually the, the go-to platform for, I mean, especially small business, right? Because it's free. Yeah. It's, most people don't know how to use 100% of it. Even great marketers I know still don't know right. how to completely utilize it all. Yeah. Um, but usually the, the, the default that people go after or go off of is that last click, right? That's right. Which usually a lot of unfair attribution. They do have the, uh, I think it's called like multi-click. Is that what it's? Is it the flow thing that you're talking about? Yeah, it's like the multi-click attribution. They've got like an attribution 360 and they've got some other things too. Yeah, which how how similar is that to what like a system like Strella does? Because usually when I talk about that to people with analytics, they kind of say, eh, it's not great. I think it's, it's, it is better than not measuring, Mm -hmm. you know? So at least it's going to create a baseline for you. I think Google offers companies a very useful set of tools that are, you know, free you know, if you will, or we call them publisher sponsored, if you will, you're using Google <laughs> yeah. or, you know, yeah. so I think those are good tools to use. It's so much better than just flying blind. Um, the challenge that you're going to have with uh, a web analytics data schema is a web analytics data schema was not meant to capture every touch point in sequence. The web analytics tools have a problem with wherein they override IDs. Yeah. And so you're not going to be able to look at all the touch points in a very robust sequential way. Mm-hmm. But again, if you're a small business, use it. It's free. It's better than not measuring anything at all. And at least it can start to give you a baseline. If you're a Google Analytics user and you're using some of their attribution math in there, um, don't just rely on the last click setting. Go in and change your setting. Change mm-hmm. it and use a few different of the models that they offer in there. It becomes much better than just, you know, yeah. just evaluating one. So we're huge proponents of using web analytics, whether you're using Google, if you're using Adobe analytics, there's some good robustness to those models. Um, they weren't, again, they weren't meant for a full marketing analytics, you know, analysis because of the data schemas, mm-hmm. but they are good places to really get started with as a foundation. So where's the tipping point when you're talking about a company and all companies start as small businesses yeah. typically, yeah. at what point should they stop or start looking for more sophisticated models? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the, the rule of thumb is, is you can pin it back to an investment and you can pin it back to the sophistication or the complexity of their engagement with their perspective or existing customers across multiple channels. If you are a brand and you say, hey, Facebook is the place where we're going to advertise and you're not big enough to be putting a lot more investment outside of one publisher or one channel, um, you can kind of rely on the models that are built into uh, a Google, you know, and with some fairly good degree of accuracy because your, your marketing is not all that complicated. When you start to get into two channels or three channels, even then, you still are probably gonna be okay to create an mm-hmm. index off of a last touch or 
uh, multi-touch using Google Analytics or some of the other analytics platforms out there. So when you start to get into areas where you're looking at five or more different publishers and channels, that's when you want to start thinking about getting a little bit more serious about that. As a matter of fact, we did some research and uh, I brought this for you both. I'll, I'll leave this with you. A benchmark survey on measurement, attribution, uh, different elements of tracking. And what we see is the more sophisticated brands, when you're starting to become a business where you're more than 50, $100 million in sales, you're probably using 10 or more different channels to reach out to your customers. When you get up into that realm, you may wanna start thinking about using something more sophisticated to measure every single touch point across all your channels, across all your content. That becomes a tipping point. So we say, you know, if you're a $50 million business, there's kind of a rule of thumb. On average, businesses invest about 10% of their revenue back into marketing. Now, if you're CPG, that's gonna be a lot higher. That could be 19 or 20%. Mm -hmm. If you're manufacturing and tech, uh, that might be closer to 12%. You know, if you're if you're a little bit of a call it a, a laggard industry, um, and it's really not a not necessarily a laggard from a uh, from a sophistication of how you sell, but from a sophistication of how you market because they're based on relationships, you might be eight percent. So on on average, though, ten percent of revenue is invested into marketing, and when you start getting up into the you know five million, ten million dollar mark of investment that's when you start need to be thinking about the complexity and a tipping point and looking at something more sophisticated because if you're a $50 million business, the you know, rule of thumb is you're going to be investing $5 million back into your marketing. If you're a $100 million business, you're going to be investing $10 million back into your marketing. And that's across people, programs, technology, and the like. So that's that's when we think there's a tipping point. Well, I think, uh, I think it's probably time that Vivint starts to invest a little bit more in their attribution <laughs> modeling. So I have one last question before we move on. Um, and that is, so what it, what the, in, like an in-house team, what, if, if there's an in-house team that's yeah. dedicated to like marketing operations who, yep. they're the ones who are doing the data and analytics and, and attribution modeling, what should that team look like? Yeah, great question. So. Typically, it's going to be comprised of three or four key parts. Number one is typically you're going to see data engineers. They're the ones who are trying to extract data. They're trying to bring it together. They're trying to transform it. They're trying to normalize it. So there's a data engineering role. Um, and these are, these are developers. They are data developers. And they understand Python. And they understand queries. And they understand how to transform your data sets. Mm -hmm. A second one is going to be your analyst they are going to be those who once the data is normalized, they're going to be looking at the data and they're going to be understanding how to extract insights out of that data. A third component part might be someone who's very familiar with the tools. So if you're using a data visualization platform like a Tableau, mm -hmm. a Domo, a Microsoft Power BI, a Looker, something else, you wanna have someone who has some level of specialization within those uh, visualization platforms. And then overall, you're going to want to have someone who's going to understand how to bring together and drive those processes together. You know, a project manager, a technical marketer, a marketing operations person who's going to be able to understand the technology implications, which technologies to use, as well as how to work with those three other parts. So the data engineers, the visualization experts, as well as the analysts. How does Strala go about acquiring we talked a lot about what Strala can do yeah. in terms of your own marketing strategy. Yeah. Is it pretty sales heavy? Do you do a lot of inbound type stuff? Because yeah. I know when it's enterprise, it's 
you know, it's generally sales heavy, but I'm not yeah. sure if you've seen success in different areas. Great question. So I think there are really two, two ways to think about this. So Strala, you know, there have been, as I mentioned, MTA vendors in the space for, you know, quite some time, you know, the visual IQs, the market shares, the analytic partners, uh, marketing evolutions, those are all great organizations. And they've been around for maybe the last five, seven years or so. And they've gotten some traction in media mix modeling. They're very services heavy businesses. And so, and then they do have some really good tech as well. Um, when we think about Strala and how we think about the next generation of, you know, data and measurement, uh, it's kind of a new concept for people. Mm -hmm. And so we have to play in those realms where those organizations are playing. So we'll do, you know, events, event marketing. So we'll show up again to the chief MarTech conference, which is a, a conference for marketing operations yeah. people yep. or the MADS conference, which is for data scientists and mar marketing analytics people. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, we're, we rely heavily on just great content that we produce that we push out through our email marketing. So our 2019 benchmark survey that we, that we did, we you know we market that via, our, via email, via our website, and so a lot of those owned media properties digitally will rely on. I think a great place for marketers to really target as well is going to be LinkedIn. If you're enterprise marketing, because you can get the targeting criteria down really well, mm -hmm. even if it is a $98 CPM. Yeah, really. It could be worth yeah, it. it. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. yeah. What, what What's the ratio at Strala of sales guys versus marketing guys? Great. Or, or gals? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So um, we are... You know, we have a pretty healthy ratio. So if you were to think of the people that are dedicated from sales to marketing, it's about two to one. So for every... Yeah, no, that's pretty good. Yeah, so for every uh, salesperson, we've got a half of a marketer. Or the other way to say it is, you know, we've got two salespeople for every one marketer. Yeah. And obviously you can get a little bit more leverage out of that, but we're big believers in marketing, obviously, yeah. because, you know, we are in the marketing no, analytics shows. space. That's awesome. Cool. So we're going to move on to uh, digital marketing roulette. We've got about 10 minutes uh, before we go. So we probably got time for about two questions while Brandon's getting the roulette table over there set up. Uh, uh, Michael, thank, thank you for coming on, man. This yeah. has been awesome. Hopefully, My pleasure. Hopefully we get some really interesting, fun questions from Brandon today. <laughs> Great. You've really put the pressure on me now. All right. He's disappointed me in the past with some. <laughs> I know. I always get uh, nervous what questions I <laughs> should put on here. All right. Number six. Um, okay. Well, we've asked this one before, but I'm always curious. What was the last documentary you watched and did you like it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was, I think it was Free Solo. That's funny. That, yeah, that was the answer last time. That's oh my. still the last one I watched. Oh, oh my gosh. I have another so one good. planned, but I haven't watched it. What did, did you say so you liked it? Oh, I loved it. It was fantastic. Were your hands sweating the whole time? Yeah, I was nervous. And, you know, even though you know there's a good outcome, uh, you're yeah. still nervous. What's for with that, that? Yeah, there's some weird psychology around they that. They built suspense into that thing. The, the, well, I, it's amazing. Well, I, don't, I, I mean, they built it. I think it's just like... Hanging on a wall yeah, for 2,000 yeah. feet up. Yeah, they, I, I don't think off. they had to do very much in order to build that suspense. <laughs> I think you're so, right. Uh, I think you're right. So my kids, um, we've been watching Our Planet. Oh, yes. Which I guess that's probably considered a documentary. It is, yeah. So it's like eight episodes uh, where you, they just focus on different parts of the planet. So this is a remake, kind of, from the Planet Earth and series. And Blue Planet. And Blue Planet. I from, just watched... 
our planet on Sunday. Oh, you did. It was awesome. Okay, yeah. So actually, so, that would be more recent than that's true. Free Solo. That's yeah. true. So, <laughs> uh, so we we've been watching these episodes just however long. Uh, have you watched all of, all the episodes? Only three. Okay, so these are the most propaganda laid episodes oh. I've ever seen in my life. All it's about is global warming and how the humans are the worst people ever. Endangered species are like the the number one featured animal in all of these. And every like every ten minutes, they have to point out how terrible of a species <laughs> we are. It was it, it was really interesting because. You know, you look back at Blue Planet, was which was made almost 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it's been a long time. And you look at uh, some of the other documentaries, and uh, I think it's David Attenborough that, or David that's Attenborough, right. that's yep. the that's the narrator. That's right. But you're right. I did notice in this one, it was it had a lot of focus on global warming. And I remember the last one I watched, it talked about the polar ice caps and that they 40% receded. And I was just like, whether it's true or not, whether you believe in global warming or not. It got me it's thinking compelling. about it. That's it was, right. it was, it was, right. it, whether it was propaganda or not, I started to get nervous. So it's working. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and, and they talk about forests and jungles and how there's only like 5% of forests that, that still exist that want. Anyway, so you're right. It does get you thinking. I, I, it happens so often that I'm just thinking, is this real? Is this true? <laughs> anyway, it makes you, it makes you ask the it, question. It does. So the last thing I'll say there, my, uh, so Blue Planet and Planet Earth. Those were not the same. And they, they went more into detail about like the food chain. So you'd right. see like the lions actually tearing into these wildebeest. They were so, great. So these, yeah, you're right. <laughs> these are rated G. So they actually take a lot of that graphic animal violence mm-hmm. out, which makes it a little bit more appropriate. They're, they're not paying us, by the way, to advertise this. But it's, it's, it's <laughs> they are it's great, though. Of, it is. They're yeah, all like great. It's four years in the making. Four years. So the cinematography is the cinematography still- is insane. It's amazing. And the last episode is a behind the scenes, hour long behind the scenes. And and one of the first I haven't finished it, but one of the first sections is uh, so in the last in the last episode be, before the uh, behind the scenes, uh, they they capture footage of a Siberian tiger in the wild, which is one of the most endangered species. I think they said there's something like 600 Siberian tigers in the world. Wow. And uh, and they had people sitting in these tiny little huts over a two-year period trying to capture footage of this these Siberian tigers and finally got some really great And that's how there. they did it. That's how they did it. They, they had hidden camera traps around, but then there were two huts that, that were probably 10 feet by 5 feet that these guys lived in and did not leave uh, <laughs> for months oh at a time. Gosh. So super, that is super insane. Fascinating. Yeah. Get to that episode. That's, I, that's I'm excited fun. to go home and watch it. <laughs> okay, last question. It better be good. That was a good one, Brandon. Love documentaries. Yeah, documentaries are good. Sounds like we're kindred spirits there. That's right. <laughs> I yeah, I don't watch as many as I... I it's, it's the kids that get me into this stuff. So. <laughs> All right. That was 30. And the question is, if you had to delete all of the apps off of your phone, you're allowed to keep the pre-installed ones. Oh. Uh, and you can only keep three. What would those be? Okay. This is a fun question. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have deleted two of my most favorite apps already. Candy Crush and... (laughs) That's my wife's. Angry Birds. (laughs) I became addicted to two of my most favorite apps. So CNN and KSL News. Mm, So so I had to delete them because I would spend an hour every night going through the news. And so anyway, so I had to delete those. So what do you do now during that hour? 
uh, I go to some of my other apps. He just goes to KSL.com on the browser. Yeah. He, go, he, he goes, goes to Ancestry <laughs> and he starts doing family okay. history. Brandon Jacob, you guys are right. I actually still go to the browser. Uh, <laughs> with, I cheat and I go to KSL.com. <laughs> and, then I, and then I go to my... So I actually am a big family history buff having worked at Ancestry.com. Yeah. So I'm actually in my family search app okay. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that one. That's probably one of my most favorite one. Um, Additionally, I would say we'll have to pull it out and see how we're related. I, hey, we'll turn it on. <laughs> let's let's see if we're like third cousins or yeah. something like that. Um, and then, additionally, uh, I'm a big fan of travel, so I love TripAdvisor. I'm in that one a lot, and I think that one's really fun. So, um, besides besides business trips, which I imagine happen frequently, they do. Yeah. Uh, where Where do you go? Oh, I, I love to travel to Europe. So my dad is from Northern Spain. He's okay. Basque. Wow. Okay. And so that's, that's where cool. my name comes from. And, uh, so love, love Northern Spain, love the Basque region. Uh, we love traveling to, uh, beaches as a family. So beaches, whether it's in Spain or Hawaii or Southern California, we're a big beach family. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So I'm going to Europe for the first time next month. Oh, where are you going? So we're going. We're flying into Stockholm for a little bit. Oh, I'm we jealous. Have, we have kind of a layover that we've got enough time to go kind yeah. of explore a little bit. Good for you. Then we're going to Amsterdam for a few days, Paris for a few days, yeah. and I think we'll hit Brussels one of those oh, days. Oh, good for you. But so my family is big into escape rooms, so we've got like three or four escape rooms already planned. While you're in there e- in each city that we really, hit. yeah. So oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, that's one of those things. It's like when you go on European trips, you don't think. Let's make it a, an escape room tour. I wouldn't have thought of that. So that's that's what that's what I'm mostly looking forward to. Well, I'm is that have the to reason you're it. going. No, it's not the reason. No, <laughs> no they've this, got the world's is, best escape room that's in right. Brussels. That's right. yeah, that's really. Uh, they do say that Amsterdam has some of the best escape rooms in the world, so we're we're gonna hit one up there. Their level, what is that called? Levels? No, uh, gen, generations. Generations. So gen one, gen two, gen three escape and rooms. And they're yeah. gen three out they're there. Gen three, yeah. I've never been. Very cool. Yeah. You'll have to tell I don't me think you've left Provo, right? Nope. Ever? Yeah. So <laughs> I wonder, I've always wondered what's down I-15. I always keep going. <laughs> yeah. awesome. No, Brandon's a huge Las Vegas fan. Oh, yeah. He loves staying at the uh, South Point. Mm, doesn't get any better. <laughs> Do you have your apps? Uh, what apps? Uh, what was it? So it's... You can keep I, three, three apps. Keep three? But you got to keep the pre-installed yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would keep Instagram. I don't need Facebook. I don't need Twitter. I don't need any other ones, uh, but I like Instagram. Uh, I like Flipboard, which is kind of like yeah. the news app. Sure. Although I kind of flip between that and the with the news app, which is built in now. So The Apple News app? Yeah. Yeah, it's a so, good one. So that, that one's uh, kind of an exception. Uh, a third app? I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm going uh, Spotify, Nike Running, and Instagram. Oh, I would do Waze. I would keep Waze. Oh, Waze is good. You have Maps, though. Like, that's a yeah. sacrifice there. Here's the thing is I, I use Maps more often than I use Waze. The only time I use Waze, which is critical, is Waze is way more accurate at estimating how long it takes you to yeah. get there. Like, way, like, it blows my mind how accurate Waze is. Yeah. Waze. I've seen that. I, I concur. You you can vouch for that? I can vouch for that. Cool. Shortest distance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So we're, we're at time. This is it. Michael, this has been awesome. I, uh, I did not think that I would be coming into this episode thinking uh, that I need to completely redo all of Vivint's attribution modeling. <laughs> uh, our VP is actually the one who built it, and he, it's kind of his, like, baby. 
uh, but there's there's definitely room for improvement, and we're we're way beyond the hundred million uh, in revenue. So happy to share best practices. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, cool. So if you've enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a positive review on iTunes or any other podcasting platform that you are listening on. Feel free to reach out. Our email is inbound at belowthefold.io. If you've got topic ideas or if you've got guests that you'd like to you'd like to see come on the show, please reach out. And that's it. Until next week, we'll catch you below the fold. That's a wrap.